All right, you ready to get started today? Here we go. Uh, actually, two weeks ago, started a, a uh, message that I entitled just The Power of Peace. I didn't really know it would actually turn into a series. Last week, we talked about the power of restoration. But today, we're going to talk about the power of unity. Now, here at Hope Crossings, we have seven core values. And these are the pr biblical principles that we use to just emphasize within our fellowship and things that we want to build this church on. One of those core values is this. We will fight for unity. Now, when you first see that, you think, well, that's kind of an oxymoron. How do the words fight and unity go together? We will fight for unity. But when we read in the New Testament, in almost every one of the books of the New Testament, the epistles, the letters to the churches, we see the Holy Spirit is instructing us not only how to attain unity between Jew and Gentile, between the rich and the poor, between all these different groups. He's saying Christ is the unifying factor. He said, but there's going to be people who come in to try and divide. He says, beware, maintain your unity, don't let anyone divide the body. And so that's one of our core values is to fight for unity. I want to say a special thanks to all of the men of our church and our community, all of the fathers, husbands. Thank you for fighting for the unity of your family. And the fight that you're doing and the work that you're doing is going to pay off and already is. You will be so, so glad when those children come back to call not only your wife blessed, their mother blessed, but also to call you blessed because you fought for unity. You were able to walk in gentle strength, in submission and yet leadership all at the same time because you're fighting for unity. So thank you very much for doing that. But the Bible tells us, gives us some instructions about fighting. In Ephesians chapter number 6 the Apostle Paul writes to the, book, to the church at Ephesus, he says, listen, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The fight, the struggle is not against husbands and wives. It's not against Jews and Greeks. It's not against urban, suburban, and rural. It's not against the have and the have-nots. It's not against black and white. It's, that's not our struggle. He said, but what we do struggle against is principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. The verse goes on to say, therefore, put on the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand in the evil day. Paul writes to the Corinthians in the second letter in chapter 10 in verse 4. He says, the weapons that we have are not the weapons that the world uses. He's saying we have weapons, we have a fight, but they're not the weapons the world uses. They're not intimidation, it's not deception, it's not an uncontrolled anger, nor is it passivity, nor is it the silent treatment. The weapons that we use are not of this world, but they do have divine power. They have divine power to demolish arguments, not to demolish those who argue. You with me? You guys just went quiet really fast. The weapons, <laughs> the weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish arguments, 
not those who argue. It is the argument. They are there to bring into submission to Christ every lofty thing that would try to rise above Christ, to rise above the knowledge of God. The arguments that people have, the confusion, is Satan's attempt trying to work in people's lives to bring a dominance over Christ and the knowledge of God. And so the weapons that we have have divine power to demolish arguments, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now what we're going to look at is a story in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter number 3. 1 Kings chapter number 3, and we're going to read an a, uh, incident that happened, and it's very familiar to probably everyone in here, uh, but it may have been a while since you read this in uh, 1 Kings chapter number 3, and we're going to start at verse number 16, read through verse number 28. This is about King Solomon, of course. King David was the second king of Israel. His son Solomon was the third. Of course, Solomon prayed for wisdom. God asked him, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want. Solomon said, I want wisdom to lead your people. And God said, you are very wise already because you didn't ask for riches or the lives of your enemy, but you asked for wisdom. I'm really going to pour out wisdom on you. And that's what he did. And this is an incident where he began to really display the wisdom that God gave him. So here we start reading in verse number 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she laid on him. And she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your servant was asleep. She put him by my, her breast and her dead son by my breast. The next morning I got, to nurse my, I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one said insistingly, no, the dead one is yours and the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. And the king said, this one says, my son is alive and yours is dead. While the other one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. And they brought a sword for the king. And he then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my Lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither, uh, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is the mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Unity is powerful. Unity must be acquired, but it also must be obtained. And here Solomon is using great wisdom 
to maintain or recapture a unity, even within a small sphere of people. But he has a sword, unscabered, and he wields that sword, or his, probably his servant did, and it was a display of what could happen. He understood that if I display what could happen, I will know what should happen. And so that's what he did. But this sword of Solomon teaches us many things. The first thing it teaches us is about the law of compromise. Now, every one of us compromise, right? If you're happily married, you know all about compromise. Okay? And if you have happy children, you know about compromise because that's just a part of life. We understand if I'm selling my house, I'm going to price it as high as I can. You're going to come up and say, no, that's too high. I'm going to offer you this. We're going to compromise until we get to the right price. Of course, if you're selling your house at the right market time, you'll set a price and you'll get more. But that's another story for another day. So compromise. We understand the negotiation process. And that's a vital part of our lives and it helps us to overcome many minor obstacles. However, you cannot compromise on certain things, such as your faith. Our faith in God must be complete and total, but we will always be tempted to compromise. We'll always be tempted to, to cut off a little bit that God wants us to have. A little bit of blessings. Oh, God doesn't want me to have that. Bless me with that. No, God does. If it's in his word, he does. But our faith must be solid and secure and not compromising. There is a way in which we are tempted to say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take part of what God teaches. And no, I'm going to leave the rest. And we want to purse it and cut it and compromise. I don't want to go that high. I don't want to believe God for that much. In the first church I pastored, we had an opportunity to acquire a, a building, a piece of property. And so I, I went and I prayed. I said, okay, God, I'm believing you for this building. We've been, we've been doing the portable church for years, and I'm believing you for this building. Oh, God, please. And I said, okay, God, I'm, I'm going I'm to pick a sign. Some people don't like that. I thought I'd give it a try. I said, Lord, I need a sign. I said, Lord, if you will give us $100,000. We had $5,000 in the bank. Hey, Lord, if you give us $100,000, I will know that you want us to proceed forward. All right, good, Lord. The next day, I went and prayed again. I said, okay, God, that was ridiculous. $10,000 will be fine. If you just give us $10,000. But as soon as I said that, I realized what I was doing. And I said, okay, sorry, God, back to the original plan. I'm going to trust you for 100000 But if you don't want us to have that building, that's okay too. But Lord, I'm trusting you for 100000 Long story short, somebody gave us $100,000. Isn't that great? Because you see, our faith needs to be expanded and, and, and used fully. Let me illustrate it this way. Everyone loves the story of Cinderella, Right? Thank you for answering with the affirmative. Appreciate that. We love the story of Cinderella. And in that story, the fairy godmother does what? She waves her wand and she turns a pumpkin into a beautiful, wonderful carriage. But what if you come along and you say, okay, I don't know about that. Here's what I think. Maybe the fairy godmother could have turned the pumpkin into a wagon, but I can't believe the fairy godmother would turn the pumpkin into a carriage. Isn't that the most stupid thing you could ever think of? If there's a story, if there's a fairy godmother, <laughs> I 
then you got to take the whole story. You got to take the whole package. And my point is this, if we serve a God who spoke and stars or suns were flung out into a distance that we can't even travel to, I think he can handle my problem. You know, we got to take the whole package. So compromise has its place, but in our faith, we must trust God even for what seems to go beyond what we can even imagine. Then secondly, the sword of Solomon teaches us about the law of complexity. There are two things in life. There are quantities and there are entities. And quantities can easily be divided. You can divide a quantity without diminishing its value. You can take a gallon of milk, pour a half of it into this container and half of it into that container, but you still have a gallon of milk. You can take 10 acre parcel of land, you can divide it once, you can divide it 40 times, but you still have 10 acres because that's a quantity. But an entity is different. An entity goes to another plane and you cannot divide an entity without destroying it. How can you divide a watch without destroying it? Or what about a rose or a poem or a portrait? Or a baby. You cannot destroy an entity. You cannot divide an entity without destroying it. And that's why we take our children as a whole. They're not a quantity. They're an entity, each and every one of them. And so we take them as a whole. We take them on their good days and we take them on their bad days. We take them on the days when we go, wow, I can't believe that happened. Praise God. And we also take them when we go, I can't believe that happened. What are we going to do now? Isn't it a wonderful day when your son finally says, without being prompted, thank you, mommy? You're like, there is a God. But we also take our children as a whole, we take them when they melt down. We recognize that they are an entity. They are something special, must be taken as a whole. We cannot divide up the days that we're going to love them and the days that we're going to like them. The third thing that the Sword of Solomon teaches us is the law of computation. When I was a kid, um, it was a great day and windy day, and me and my friend had gotten some kites, and we wanted to fly a kite, but we were not satisfied with the height of the kite. So I said, hold my kite, hold your kite. I'm going to run home and get some money. I didn't have any. I was just hoping for the best. So I went up to my father. I said, man, we, we, I got to buy some more kite string. Can you give me some money? He only had a 20. Now, this is in the 1960s. $20 was like, I don't even know if I'd ever touched a 20 before. So he hands me a 20. So, I, you know, the store, we, we just right across the street from the field where we were flying the kites. So I went and bought some, some kite string. And, man, it was up there. We ran out again. I went and bought some more kite string. And... You could, by the time I got done buying kite string, you could just, it was like a little dot way up there in the sky somewhere. We're like, and then it was it truly, it was starting to get dark. And then I realized, oh no, I got to reel all this stuff back in. I was tempted to go cut that string. <laughs> but I just remembered I had spent my dad's money. So then when I brought the change back to my father, he looked at it and he said, where's the rest of it? I said, I bought kite string. <laughs> and I could tell that he was upset with me because I had bought too much kite string. But the great thing about my dad 
was that he realized the value of a person's life. And he recognized that to really scold me or get on to me about that would have been damaging because I was a boy and I was having a good time and I just went too far. Love always goes too far. Parents, your children will always go too far. Passion will take you too far. The, the tragedy would be to raise children without passion. The tragedy would be to raise children who don't care. The tragedy would be able to raise children who are just a blob that just sit there. They don't give you any problems, but they don't give you any joy either. You okay? Y'all are real quiet today. Y'all right? Okay. So, this law of computation. I didn't understand the value of the dollar. My dad did, but he also understood I was more important than the money that I spent. The law of computation, we know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. 12 plus 12 equals 24. But a half a baby and half a baby make no baby. Because human beings live on a higher existence where mathematics completely breaks down. We use mathematics on a lower plane, but we live on a higher plane. You see, when a man distributes his wealth to his children, he gives to each one of them an equal amount. But when he distributes his love to his children, he gives all of his love to each one of them. And that's where mathematics breaks down because of the love of a father. We understand that mathematics only works on a lower plane. There's not a couple ever in the world who's brought a child into the world and then having lost that child would ever believe that three minus one equals two. They will never be two again. They realize their heart have, has been expanded. Their, their memories have been expanded. They can never be just two again. But in reverse, there's not any couple who would ever believe that two plus an additional baby just equals three. Two plus one doesn't equal three because because of that one little baby, their, high, their lives have been expanded like a thousandfold. And they will never be the same. And they realize our lives are so much more exciting just because of the addition of one. Jesus taught a parable about stewardship. He chose to use the subject of money, and it's called the parable of the talents. And he said, there's a rich guy, and he brought three of his servants to him. And to the one, he gave five talents, or we'll just call them five bags of gold. To another, he gave two bags of gold. And to the third one, he gave one bag of gold. And he said, okay, go do business and make money for me, and then on the day, we'll, we'll settle scores here. That day came, and he called his servants and the, so the one guy that he gave five bags of gold, he says, man, I did really well. I got five more. So here's 10 bags of gold back. And the guy says, way, way to go. That's awesome. And to the guy who was given two bags of gold, he said, man, I, I doubled it. I, get, I made two more. Here's four bags of gold back. Great job. Way to go. But to the one who had given one bag of gold, this guy responded. He said, listen, I was afraid. I know you're a harsh man. And so I was afraid I hit it. And then when yesterday when I got the email saying that we need to settle scores, I went and dug it up. So here's your one bag of gold. And the master of that group said, this is a lazy and a wicked servant. I wonder what would have happened if the guy who had been given one bag of gold said, man, I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm fearful. I don't know what to do. I know what I'll do. I'll go to the guy who he gave two bags of gold to, and I'm going to find out what he's going to do. I mean, two heads are better than one, right? 
And what would have happened if both of them went to the guy with the five bags of gold and they would have all come up with a plan? You see, Ecclesiastes says one might fall, but two can stand their ground, but a threefold cord is not easily broken. There's power in coming together. Men, we are going to come together in ministry to one another and to our community. This Saturday at 8 o'clock, you're invited to men's breakfast right here at the church. We're going to have eggs, bacon, biscuits. Are you hungry yet? It's going to be good. And we are setting forth a plan to really begin a men's ministry that is not only going to greatly impact the men of this church, whether you're old or young. We don't have any old people at Hope Crossings. I forgot. We have no old people. We just have people who have, they're seasoned. Okay? So whether you're seasoned or you're being seasoned, it's all for you. And then we're going to reach out into the community. So this Saturday at 8 o'clock, what we're doing is we're coming together as that threefold cord. What if it's a fivefold? What if it's five threads into that cord? What if it's 20? What is 40 threads? And a rope that just has threads that are wound around, that's strong, but, are, but threads that are intertwined and woven and braided together, now that is a strong cord. Hey, men, how many of you want to build a strong cord of men's ministry that can be effective and powerful? That's what we're going to do. So there's that law of computation where two can do a great amount, three can do even more exponentially, and the numbers go on and on and on. The four things that the Sword of Solomon teach us is the law of contradiction. As I said earlier, Solomon had to threaten what could have happened so that he would know what should happen. There was no way he was going to cut that baby in two. That was not the plan. He had no intention of doing that, but he knew he had to have the threat. What good would it do to divide a baby in half? Absolutely none. We see that story lived out in Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham, our father of faith, was, was given the promise, you're going to be the father of a great mighty nation. But he had to wait 25 years for the, for the birth of Isaac. 25 years he waited and waited and waited and waited. Some of you are in the waiting process right now. And God is saying, hang in there. I've got a plan. I'm working my plan. It's going to be really good. Don't shortcut the circuit by doing something prematurely. So Isaac is born. Isaac's now about 13 years old. And God says to Abraham, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your son Isaac and I want you to go up to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him there. Abraham in the past had been a little reluctant to be obedient because sometimes you and I do that too, right? Yes. And so sometimes you're just a little slow to obey. But at this point in time, Abraham says, if God says it, I need to do it. Here we go. The next morning, they head out to the mountains and he takes his son Isaac up onto the mountain, builds an altar, ties his son, lays his son down on the altar. And I'm, I'm just telling you what I think. This may not be true. We'll ask Abraham one day, a billion years from now, what happened. But I think Abraham was really taking his time. I think at that point, he was saying, I don't get this. I don't understand this. But I'm going to give God all the time he needs to come up with plan B. <laughs> but just about the time Abraham was going to truly be obedient, God said, stop. Stop. And there was a lamb or a ram caught in bushes. And it was so obvious to Abraham at that time, that's the sacrifice. 
not this. God never intended for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. It was a test of his faith. But several thousand years later, there was another test of faith, and that came in a garden with God's son, Jesus, in which he was praying, knowing his imminent death on the cross. And yet he prayed, God, if it's possible, if there's any way possible, let, let this cup just pass from me. But not what I'm thinking about right now, not, not, not the feelings that I'm having right now, but Lord, whatever you want, that's what I want. Here we go. And that's when the son was sacrificed and there was no one there that said, stop, don't do it. But rather the father was saying, yes. And so here God's son submitted himself to the space of a woman's womb. And he was born like everyone else and he lived a child, a childhood like everyone else. And he lived an adult life and he was perfect and he taught and he loved and he healed and he performed miracles. And for all of that, they killed him. But it was all in God's plan. God said, this is my plan, that the innocent would die for the guilty. The one who never sinned would not only die for your sin, but the sin of the whole world, the sin of everyone. The sin of those who live in ivory towers and the sin of those who are homeless. The sin of those who live in really nice houses and have everything all together, it seems. And for those who are just trying to eke out a living and try to find their way, God said, I'm sending Jesus to the cross to die for everyone's sins. The guilty for the innocent. I'm sorry, the innocent for the guilty. Jesus, no sin, became our sin so that we could be free from sin. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Today, we know that the power of unity will never leave us alone. Because God said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Even though you're a, you're a father trying to, to find that way, to try and find that place, to try and figure out how to do fatherhood, God said, I'll never leave you. I'll help you. Even in your mistakes, I'm going I'm to I'm work them for good. I'm going to take the things you've done wrong, and I'm going to work them for good. I'm going to take the little, little sidesteps. I'm going to work it for good. It's all according to, my, according to my plan. As a husband... You make mistakes. I make mistakes. But God says it's all in my plan. I will never leave you. Even though we become unfaithful, God said, I cannot be unfaithful. God cannot be unfaithful. He can only be faithful. And so God comes along and says, I paid a heavy price for your salvation. You think I'm going to give up on you? You think I'm going I'm to turn my back on you? I invested too much in you. I've got a plan. The question is, and Jim asked a great question earlier, the Holy Spirit is here today. We're gathered in his name. We're praising and glorifying Christ. But how immersed do we want to be in God? How immersed do we want to be in the Holy Spirit? My question to you is this. Christ has, Christ has given salvation to us. He has offered it to us. He's saying, here, here it is. But have you accepted it? Have you said... Yeah, Lord, I'm, this is my day. I accept the fact that an innocent Christ died for my sin. 
we make it personal in that moment. It's in that moment that all of a sudden we become born again and we realize that Christ is our savior and he will never leave us. There is a unity that comes not only with the body of Christ, but there's a unity that comes between you and Christ. And he said, I will never ever leave you. And the day on which you will need him the very most is what Romans 14 says, everyone must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone must do that. And I assure you in that moment, you will not be alone. And in that moment, you will not be judged according to whether your marriage was as good as his marriage or your house was as big as his house or your lawn was as manicured as his lawn or you had as big of a 401k as he had. You will be judged according to what God has given you as a steward. But there will be one standing beside you and his name will be Jesus Christ. And he's going to say to the Father, he's, he's with me. He's with me. And on that day, you'll say, I'm glad, I'm glad that God preached the gospel to me. He got the gospel to me and I accepted it. No matter what this life throws at you, on that day, you'll be glad, you'll be glad.